episode of C here. Now, as you can hear, I don't have young Bernard or young Tim with me to discuss a film. Uh, and in fact, really, in some ways, this bonus episode is covering ground that's previously been done on C here before. Let me explain in case you haven't read the notes. So earlier on this month, that being April of 2016, I had the extremely good fortune to be able to speak to one Darian Sahanaja. He is the uh, piano player and songwriter for a wonderful group out of Los Angeles called Wondermints. Now, many years ago, Wondermints got absorbed into the overall bigger band that is Brian Wilson's band. So, effectively, I was speaking to, what did he call himself? The musical secretary, not the musical director, the musical secretary of Brian Wilson's band. Now, we ended up speaking for quite a while, the better part of two hours or so, and most of that interview you can hear on my regular podcast, Love That Album. It'll be episode 89. I'm not sure if I'll have put out that whole interview by the time this bonus episode of See Here comes out, but keep a look on the Love That Album podcast feed. However, at one stage in the interview, we ended up discussing his work as music consultant for 2015's film uh, directed by Bill Pollard about Brian Wilson called Love and Mercy. Now, if you're a regular listener to the See Here podcast, you'd know that we've already discussed Love and Mercy in a whole lot of details. Myself and Bernie and our good friend Frank Santo Padre over at the Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal podcast and also Tish Greer, writer Tish Greer. We had a wonderful conversation back in February. Uh, about love and mercy so uh, in some ways you could say well you know we've said a whole lot of stuff about it but it was really fascinating to get Darian's take as someone who was on the inside working on the film and he had a lot of really interesting things to say about it and because we ended up speaking for about 20 minutes just about love and mercy I thought well rather than keeping that as strictly part of the love that album podcast I'd siphon off that bit of the interview and bring it to you as a see here bonus. If you want to hear more of what Darian Sahanaja has to say about his work with Brian Wilson, and in fact, a ton of other things, you know, his work with his band Wonderments, uh, his time spent in uh, helping out the band The Zombies for their 40th anniversary, uh, some stuff about Arthur Lee's love, a whole range of things. Uh, a really fascinating chap. Uh, so you, you can go over to uh, the Love That Album feed, episode 89. It may well be out by the time you hear this, but if it's not, then it'll be out within a you know, within a week or two of uh, you hearing this. Anyway, just check episode 89 on the Love That Album feed. But anyway, so the purpose of this uh, piece of audio that you're listening to is just that little bit from our interview where he's speaking only about Love and Mercy and his work uh, with Paul Dano. Uh, who was playing as younger Brian in the film, and also with working with the real musicians who ended up uh, performing as the wrecking crew while recording Pet Sounds. As I said, a really fascinating conversation. He has a lot of interesting things to say, and I really hope that you dig this uh, little bit of um, little bit of interview and go listen to the Love That Album one and tell your friends that this show exists. And uh, later on uh, in this month, you'll hear the regular episode, episode 27 
of See Here podcast where Tim Bernie and myself will be discussing a, a fantastic film called Hardcore Logo. But that's uh, a subject of a separate episode. Anyway, for the moment, just sit back and enjoy this uh, brief slice of interview with Darren Sahanaja of Brian Wilson's band and One Dimension. I'll uh, have a couple more things to say at the end of the episode. So um, just sit back and have a listen to myself and Darren. I was sitting in a crummy movie with my hands on my chin. Oh, the violence that occurs seemed like we never win. As I mentioned to you earlier on, on my other podcast, See Here, we discussed Love and Mercy. And, you know, from all reports, you know, Brian was very, very happy about it. And I, you know, I heard he said something, well, that was a darn good movie. You know, <laughs> so, you know, he, was, he was very pleased about it. He also said, yeah, I like it because real life was much harder. Oh, wow. Watching Paul Giamatti. Paul, Paul Giamatti, the brilliant yeah. Paul Giamatti. I found him genuinely frightening. Yeah. I mean, he, he, was, he had that... So like a bubble under the surface, and then when he's chewing John Cusack out for getting that hamburger, you thought, wow, you know, this is a guy that is going to explode at any time. And you can just imagine what Brian in in real life had really felt. I mean, I don't know whether that was like a fictitious moment or not, but you can just imagine that, you know, he was completely frightened of this guy going and exploding on him at, at any stage, much less all the other sort of ways that... Uh, he had a grip on Brian's life. But wh- what I wanted to discuss specifically with you was Paul Dano. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, Paul, uh, allegedly, he didn't play piano before no, coming in, no, into the movie? he hadn't. He hadn't played piano. I mean, he... Is that really him playing piano in the movie or just putting is. his hands in the, in the right place? Wow. Yeah. He, he he worked he worked his butt off. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's essentially how I even got involved. I got a call from the producers, and they had told me that they just cast him, and he lives in New York. And they were they were considering they they had to they wanted to find out whether he was going to be able to pull these musical parts off, you know, mm-hmm. and be be convincing. And um, the Wilsons suggested that the producers give me a call to just see what I thought, you know, like what would be the best approach. And they were asking whether they should hire a piano teacher and a vocal coach or all this. And, and, you know, I told them my opinion. I said things like, well, my, I would be concerned if you, if he got piano lessons that he would almost look too refined, you know, cause that wouldn't be right. If, mm. If, you know, the, the actor playing Brian all of a sudden playing scales like Liberace or something, that's, that's not right. <laughs> that's not Brian. Yeah. Although a lot of people's perception is that he's some musical, you know, virtuoso, but he's not, you know, yeah. he's a very basic player. He just does what it takes to, to get the parts together. And then they were, you know, they were concerned that, 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 that Paul wasn't going to be able to, you know, how convincing was he going to look singing the parts? Because there's a lot of close-up scenes where I'm singing. So after I'd given my opinion, they sort of, right before we hung up, they said, let us ask you something. Would you be interested in meeting up with him if we flew you out there? And so I thought, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> so I flew out and I half expected, you know, a young sort of maybe entitled actor spoiled, <laughs> you know, sure. 
sort of prima donna type or something, but he walked in and he was really, really super low key uh, and just very reserved. And, and I mean, if, if I didn't know any better, he would have been a kid, one of these indie kids that come to the Brian Wilson show. You know what uh, I mean? Like yeah, yeah. He just had that manner about him and, and it was so cool. And sure enough, he says, Oh yeah, I love, I love all the smile stuff. And, 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 and had been listening to it even before he got the got the role. You know, he'd been he'd been into that stuff. He likes all sorts of music, but he was one of those kids that was intrigued by Brian Wilson in that way. Not so much sure. You know, you acknowledge the hits, but he would Brian Wilson, the artist. You know, the one who really explored his creativity, uh, the boundaries. And and so that was really cool. And then he never played the piano, so I found ways of um, I made these. <laughs> made these little charts with the piano notes and the red dots. So these are the, you put your hands here for your right. nose for each chord, but you know, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have mattered if he, if he didn't work hard and he did, he practiced, he got himself a piano and he worked and worked and worked and worked. Did he understand anything about chords at all? Like if, if he'd said, right, do you, do you know what an A or what a D seventh is or something? No. Would he, he, he knew nothing of that. No, no, all the more an incredible achievement. Yeah, but he didn't know any of that. But but he saw this as a as a sort of a learning experience musically too. So it was almost like he was. We approached it almost a, as a as method musician. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's method acting. There's method music. Like right. we, we knew the songs that were going to be uh, featured in the film, and so if he was required to do this, we just we just approached those two or three or four songs, and he really worked hard. I, I think over time, he actually learned, okay, this is a C, this is a D, this is, you know, oh, and these these keys just sort of repeat themselves across the, the board. And um, so, yeah, I, and then the singing was a whole other thing. He, I was really, really impressed that he had good pitch, and he could actually sing high falsetto. Mm. So it was more about trying to get his tone to be a little more nasally in places and things like that. I think they were hoping at the time to use as little track as possible. I mean, it, and that's a tough call because, I mean, nobody sounds like Brian uh, in the young days. Uh, but the director, Bill Pollard, was hoping that it would be that kind of film that if you, if it's done in the right way, and if the actor really embodies the character, that he doesn't have to sound exactly like Brian, but he can become Brian and be convincing enough uh, for a, a viewing audience to, to to believe it. Oh, I completely concur. I mean, his he became Brian. I mean, John yeah. Cusack. John Cusack was great, but he was acting Brian. Paul Dano to me was Brian. It, it can't fathom it. It's just incredible. No, it was so. Again, just like any of these things that I work on, when when it's happening, it's just happening so fast, and it's just a, it's like problem solving. And you're like, okay, what do you got to do? Okay, this is what we got to do here, and this is what, how how best can we uh, get this point across? And so, what's happening? You're just hoping for the best, but then you look back, and when it's all done, and you think, wow, you know, that's I'm so glad that decision was made, and this. And actually, beyond working with Paul, the the more satisfying contribution that I had made, because I think after I'd after I'd worked with Paul, producers were so happy about that uh, relationship, and, and Paul had told them that you know he really liked working with me, and so that was cool. But then 
they started asking me about the scenes, uh, the wrecking crew scenes. Right. Uh, and then they were asking about that, like how, what, what were my thoughts about that? Like, how are we going to pull that off with the, with, if we're trying to, cause I think the idea was to synchronize to the, you know, the pet sound sessions, the playback sessions where you hear Brian, you know, calling out and they were thinking, gosh, you know, this is going to be a really heavy editing situation because Paul, Paul Dana would have to basically mime the, all of those those lines, and then they'd have to edit, go back and forth between the tapes, and then him live, and all this kind of stuff. So they asked me my thoughts, and the first thing for me was to say that it's a, a great peeve of mine <laughs> in music, in, in in films like this, when you see something on the screen and you hear something that sounds completely different than what right. you're. The screen, so that was that was a big thing for me. That whoever it was that they were going to have portray the musicians, they have to be looking like they're playing the instruments correctly and playing playing what you know. Actually, like guitarists are holding the chords that that you hear and and vice you know on all that. So then that one thing led to to another on that too, and they they felt like well you know, maybe we should hire this guy in an expanded capacity to, to oversee that. And so they let, they actually, they wanted actors, of course, to portray all of them. And I thought, well, I, you know, it would be great if we can get musicians. Well, what musicians would you, are you thinking? And I said, well, I know a bunch of outside of the Brian Wilson band who happened to be on tour when all the shoot, when all the filming was happening. So we couldn't do that. Mm. Have those guys, but I knew plenty of musicians that could fit the bill pretty well and look the part, look era specific, and just have that demeanor about them, like they're session guys and and were good players. So yeah, I rounded up all those guys. The only people, only person that they insisted on casting themselves was the Hal Blaine role because I was going to say he he was a. Ca- I mean, I presume he's a real drummer though as well, is he or? He is, but drumming is more of a, you know, a hobby to him rather than, you know, like the other guys are real musicians. That's what their livelihood. I I was, I was hoping to get a drummer that really embodied it, embodied the part, like can play the parts, but can kind of act. But they went the other way. They went with a real actor that can kind of play. (laughs) (laughs) Look, he he did a very, very good job. I got to say, as a film lover, I was, I was thrilled, you know. He did yeah. a he did and, a great job, and in a musical sense, he yeah. looked looked the part. And in the and the scene out in the parking lot with him and Brian, I mean, that's such a heavy, important scene. So absolutely, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that they, they, you know, that was a that was a good move. But so, but, so can I quickly ask you the the actress who played uh, who played Carol Kay? Yeah. Um. So she's someone who you selected or yeah she's been a friend of mine for years and years and i've always wanted to work with her in one in one way or another and so this opportunity came up and you know and i asked her and she was into it uh but then it also required that she speak some 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 lines and she was kind of uncomfortable with that and i said i just do it you know i don't know how it's gonna come (laughs) off so it's a little stiff but at the same time it's like well this goes back to what yeah let me let me back up for a sec because what had happened was i I got all these guys, and then I actually wanted. It was important to me that the that the that they look like they're playing the instruments. Well, how best could it could we how best could we uh, uh make it that that it appears that they're playing the actual parts, 
but by actually playing the parts. Mm. So, so I, 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 I charted everything out for the guys and girl and had instruments. I remember talking to the prop department and, you know, I, I said, well, it's got to be this amp and these guitars and all that. And then, and then at one point I said, uh, yeah, and make sure that, uh, it gets intonated and this. And they're, <laughs> I remember them saying, Oh, so you, you want them functional? <laughs> I said, yeah. And then they just weren't used to it because in movie making, it's all props, you yes. know, they just, they have, it's all for look, it's all for show. And then they go back and re-record it later at the, you know, they, they, they get musicians and they, but that's exactly the kind of thing that always takes me out of those kind of movies. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, a movie like Ray, it's a good movie, but as soon as the, as soon as the music starts, it doesn't sound, it sounds like it, like they went into the studio and recut all the stuff. And, right. That sounds really great. So, so this time I just, I thought, well, if, if we can get them to play the stuff, even if they're miming to the track, at least it will have that extra level of authenticity to it. And the, the first, the day before the, sh the initial shooting, we all got together and we were really fortunate because they booked the original studio. That it the Pet Sounds was recorded. So this is Gold Star, wasn't it? Oh uh, no, it was uh, it was what was called Western Studios. So oh, okay, right. There was United and there was Western. There were two two buildings, United Western Studios, but they were in Western, and they were in the Western Three, which was the smallest room. Which is that's that's what's again one of these like amazing revelations that you think God, an album like Pet Sounds, as expansive as it sounds, was recorded in the smallest tightest little room <laughs> but yeah so so we packed that room up with these musicians and i you know we went by photographs where they all set up and we, we set them all up and then we ran we ran god only knows and then we ran uh, i'm waiting for the day and i i hired a, an english horn player to play the the part and timpanis and the whole thing and so we ran it and i remember running it down and and after we after we finish, I hear like applause coming up from behind me, and I turn around and it's the director. The director had popped his head in with the cinematographer just to kind of check things out, but he's applauding, and then he looks at me and he goes, "Why do we even need to mime to track? Why do we even have to use the track?" And I I don't know. And and what was cool was it ended up solving a lot of his sort of challenge that he he he. He was trying to figure out how he was going to get Paul Dano as an as you know as playing portraying Brian to interact with the band and it make it feel smooth. Mm. And at the like I mentioned earlier, at the time they thought, oh, they were going to have to, you know, it was going to be a lot of post production editing to try to, you know, use the original track and then back and forth and back and forth. But this was such a, I guess it was it just completely opened up the doors for Bill. And he, he ended up changing his whole approach once he saw that the band played really well and sounded really authentic. And he thought, wow, you know, I'm going to complete. And so he ended up going with a documentary style camera. Yes. Yes. Which, which ended up being great because it really added to the authenticity of it. You know, he's in the room with the musicians. So when the camera and the microphone's close to the piano, then you hear that. And then you hear other instruments in the distance, like going, you know, running the parts. It just felt, it was 
you know, that had turned out really, really good, and I was so happy he he went with that. But it, See, again, part of, it was, I was going to say part of it, part of that scene's brilliance, and part of that approach of it doing it documentary style. Mm-hmm. I've I've gone and said this to you know by compadres in the See Here podcast was that unlike films like you've already mentioned Ray. Or, or there's, you know, Walk the Line, the two mm-hmm. big ones of recent years, is it's more about, you know, the the, the, the all the things that went on as periphery. But, uh, yeah, sure, there's musical performances, but what separates their uh, love and mercy from those is it shows Brian's brilliance. It shows the creative process, which yeah. we don't get in those other films. And that's, to yeah. me, what makes this film head and shoulders above those. I think I mentioned, you know, when the producers first got in touch with me about working, about meeting with Paul and then, and then when they got to the point where they wanted, they asked if I would be interested in having a more expanded uh, involvement in the movie. One of the first things I requested was to meet with the director because there had been so many really, really bad cheese ball takes on the Beach Boys history right, with, right. in, in movies, television, it was important to me that if I got involved, I didn't want to be associated with any of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what was really nice was meeting with Bill. He said he just he set up a meeting just to to have you know, sit down and chat. And I just knew again the same way I I felt about meeting Paul Dano for the first time. He was like it, he wasn't the typical kind of hotshot kind of Hollywood type director. He was really he was a very sort of introspective, very thoughtful reserved kind of person who, who was very sensitive and I, and I could tell, Oh, this is not going to be that kind of, and first thing out of his mouth was, I'm not interested in making it your conventional biopic. You know, that was the first thing out of his mouth. And I was like, yes. And then he, then he went on to talk about how he was really interested in capturing the creative process. Just like you just said, he says, if I can, if I can capture that in a film along with, of course, you know, what goes, what's behind that in Brian's, what's, you know, what kind of mind is behind that kind of creative process that, that that's the movie I want to make. And and he did. And it was, you know, I'm so, so proud to have been involved, involved with it. Too many of these kind of movies, especially when they're about artists, especially not your typical entertainment type artists, the, the mistake they make is they try to be too slick with it, you know, and too Hollywood with it. Uh, because even, and, and even if the production values are really slick, it's just the fact that they are that just don't mesh with the sensibility of the, of, of the subject matter, you know? And that, that just feels wrong to me. And it happened with, I don't know if you saw that recent film about uh, CBGBs, the New York Club. I, I haven't, but a, a bunch of uh, my friends have, and the general consensus is it's not great. Right. Well, and to me, okay, maybe the acting and the script were subpar, but more than anything is that they made a slick film about a punk rock scene. Yes. You know what I mean? It didn't capture the grit. It, like, make it – it would have worked much better as sort of a, like an indie film or something – that's what Love and Mercy is. It's a little more indie-like or European-like than an American, you know, Hollywood box office kind of film. And that's why it works, because it's about an artist. If you're going to make a film about an artist, the filmmaking should reflect that. That's why I think this movie works as well as it does. I mean, there's a few things that are, you got to hit some of the big t- touching points, but sure. 
But I think overall the, the soul of the film in its approach is very uh, unconventional and there, and, and Brian is unconventional. So it, 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 that feels right, you know, right, right off the bat. It's like, that feels right. Mm. And well, once again, we've we've got over the two hour mark. I'm just so, and and I've have fun sitting. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you. Um, I, I have a feeling though this is going to go out as is. Thank you so much, Darian, for your time. We'll we'll be back after this break. And thank you so much once again to Darian for uh, taking the time to speak to us. Thanks for having me, Maurice. Cheers. Love and mercy, that's what you need to know. So love and mercy to you and your friends tonight. Love and mercy tonight. Once again, my thanks to Darian Sahanaja, who is so very, very giving of his time. As I said at the start of the show, you only heard about 20 minutes of discussion there, but if you go to the Love That Album podcast feed, you'll find that there's uh, an additional one hour, 31 hour, 40 minutes worth of uh, discussion with uh, Darren, and he was just absolutely so fascinating, so riveting. He's done quite a lot of things uh, over the last, I don't know, 25 odd years, 35 years with Wonderments and with the Zombies and, of course, Brian Wilson's band. Uh, and uh, also, uh, being being uh, this being a film podcast, you might also sort of find there's some interest in the fact that, uh, in case you didn't know it, that he was the man who went and wrote one of the theme songs for the first Austin Powers movie. You remember, Austin Powers, he's a man for you. That's him. Uh, he went and wrote that song and uh, did rather a good job. I rather think it's quite a catchy little ditty and uh, certainly... Um, he, I just find it fascinating that he managed to include the word shag in the theme song. I don't know that there's many other theme songs to movies that include the word shag, so my salute to Darren for making that happen. Anyway, so if you want to hear more of what he has to say about music and Austin Powers and all sorts of other things, then uh, head over to Love It Album, episode 89. Uh, also, very, very importantly, please make sure that you subscribe to the C here uh, feed if uh, you haven't already done so if you might have just downloaded this as a one-off please continue to listen to uh, our fine podcast I like to think we have a rather fine podcast going here myself with uh, Bernard Stickwell and Tim Merrill we discuss music related films and uh, here in April 2016 uh, as I said this is just a bonus episode so the main episode that will be coming out uh, before the end of April will be our discussion on the Bruce McDonald film of 1996, Hardcore Logo. And uh, anyway, we've got lots to say about that, no doubt. So uh, please keep a lookout for that. Anyway, look, thanks once so much, once again, for uh, listening to this bonus episode of See Here. And we'll catch you on uh, one of these other podcasts at some stage. All the best. Cheers. <laughs>
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 